1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com Science Weekly.
2: Hi, host Madeline here. Science Weekly is on its Christmas holidays, so this week we've been revisiting
3: our mini-series Killing the Sky Dancer. Today is the final
2: episode As biodiversity reporter Phoebe Weston and I investigated why so many of the UK's birds of prey are being illegally killed, we realised how much these crimes have to do with culture and economics,
3: and why stopping it isn't as simple as it might seem on the surface. Enjoy. Before we start, if you haven't heard the previous two episodes, go back and take a listen. And a warning. This episode includes descriptions of animal cruelty. On a trip up to North Yorkshire earlier this year, I stopped in a small market town near where Susie's chicks had been killed. It was there I'd met Alan, who you heard in episode two.
4: The shooting fertility is not here to kill everything. Some of these do gunners want to come and actually just stand and keep their bloody mouths shut and watch what a shoot does through the day.
3: Yeah. It was a beautiful place, full of old stone buildings, with lovely cafes and shops, a couple of classic British pubs, all surrounded by scenic moorland. The moorlands bring in a steady stream of hikers, cyclists, and grouse shooters. So I was curious: did people living here know that birds of prey are being illegally killed? It does happen, and it should it should be allowed to coexist. Everyone that I spoke to knew about it. Do you think there's awareness?
4: People are aware of it up here. Um, Do
5: you think they care? I think they do. I think there is... (laughs) It's very hard when your livelihood is raising birds for people to shoot.
3: Not everyone felt comfortable with it, and some really didn't like it.
6: I I mean, I, I don't support... About the killing of these birds of prey in any way. No. It's... it's, it's um,
5: if there was but, a better deterrent, yeah. that would be great.
3: A few people told me it had changed or it was changing.
5: I think they are now retraining and being shown a different way to do it.
3: But the overarching message I got was that killing birds of prey was tolerated. It was a justifiable or understandable crime.
6: You're going to find a lot of people turn a blind eye to it because of the benefits it brings. Like, people might not agree with it, but, yeah, the benefits are just too great to a lot of people. And, and they feel as if, you know, this is the only way to do it.
5: There is a reason for it, and it isn't necessary to do evil.
3: From The Guardian, I'm biodiversity reporter Phoebe Weston, and this is a special Age of Extinction mini-series for Science Weekly. Killing the Sky Dancer Part 3 An Open Secret. As I chatted to people around the town, there was one clear reason why shooting birds of prey is overlooked. Economics.
5: The grass moors around here are a big income for a lot of people. So you get a lot of the younger kids who'll come in and their first jobs will be beaten. So they'll be up on the hills scaring the grouse up so that they're able to be shot.
3: The Moorland Association, a members organisation for moorland owners, estimates that grouse moor management in in England is responsible for more than 1,500 full-time jobs. Alongside employment, there's the money coming in from the people who visit to shoot.
5: But the thing is there are people who are coming over and doing the sport Usually aren't people from around here. They're coming up from down south or coming from across the countries, across the sea, just to come shoot these birds.
3: The Moorland Association also estimates that more than £15 million a year is generated by grouse shooting in the north of England and related industries like hospitality, equipment and transport. They say it benefits businesses in some of the most remote areas.
6: The people that are doing it are almost certainly looking at their own income and then the income around the community because the people have to stay in the pubs and stay in the inns and the bed and breakfasts and and the money that they're spending in the towns and they believe that that is necessary.
5: The thing is, a lot of the people who do the gamekeeping, who organise these kinds of systematic ways to try and deter... Uh, birds of prey coming through or kind of thin the numbers in the area. A lot of them have been, because part of my family has been trained to do gamekeeping and they are taught about conservation. They need to make sure that, yes, sometimes getting rid of some of the birds of prey that have settled into the area can really help, but they also understand the cause that, okay, these are birds of prey. You can't get rid of them all because that has a knock on effect of everything else in the area. Because get rid of all the. Birds.
3: What I found interesting was how many people around the town talked about how gamekeepers love nature and the land. Throughout this investigation, I tried to speak to a gamekeeper and hear their view on having to sit slap bang in the middle of this tension between nature and business. But even with promises of complete anonymity, it was a big, loud, no way. So I called up someone who had managed to track down some retired gamekeepers and get them on the record.
2: OK, so I'm Ellen Burnside. I worked with Dr Nick Paman and Dr Alan Collins on If It Flies, It Dies with our study about profit, workplace pressure and bird of prey persecution. Just to say, the gamekeepers you'll hear are voiced by actors. The main pressure to commit raptor persecution arises from that risk of huge personal consequences. The height of the job fragility for gamekeepers is immense. And I think it's important to emphasize that there's been very little effort from the criminal justice system to address this inequality of employment power relations, which caused many wildlife offenders to commit offenses. So housing is usually attached to the job. You've got vehicles as well that could be attached you know because job salary is quite low for a gamekeeper it's relatively low so at the time of the study for a single-handed keeper it was around about £21,000 bearing in mind that sometimes you're called upon to work night shifts you don't get much holiday time it's a lifestyle it's not a nine-to-five job so if you're dismissed from that job you're not just losing your job you're essentially losing everything that you have and I think one of our participants really emphasized that well.
4: My sole income is this job. Without this house and this job I'm a bloke with a wife and three kids whose skill set is essentially around countryside management and being quite good at shooting things. I can't just go and get another job. I've got an homeless family so Am I going to take a risk and try and keep my job? Absolutely, of course I am. And that's what people need to try and understand when they go through this.
3: And you also describe something called
2: economic pressures. Can you tell me a bit about that? Some commentators reported that recreational shooting has transitioned from a quaint country sport into a multi-million pound industry. One was talking about how 20, 30 years ago, you'd have a group of people that would be happy to shoot 200 birds. Now that same group of people want to shoot 400, 500 birds. You had another keeper as well stating... The
6: pressures are huge. When a boss is putting an awful lot of money of his or her own into a shoot, then the pressure is there to make sure they get a return from it.
2: You know, it should be about, they told me, going out in the countryside enjoying the view, you know, shooting a few birds, but it's about having a lovely day out in the countryside. Whereas they referred to it now as a numbers game. So it's how many can you shoot? So the shooting industry was likened to business basically.
3: And presumably they've got pressures from both ends because you've got the pressure if you fail to produce enough grouse on shoots, then there's a risk of being moved on from your job. But equally if you get caught for doing it, then that's another risk. Like you're kind of, you're damned if you don't and you're possibly damned if you do. Although in practice, very few people do get done for raptor persecution, but you are being put in a position where you're committing a crime.
2: Yeah, a huge risk is involved and you're right from both ends. A couple of participants did state that the direct pressure to illegally control raptors did come from their landlord or boss and that they had experienced it. So one gamekeeper quoted verbatim,
4: I've worked on estates before where the boss has come up to me and said, I've just gone for a walk down the Glen and I saw two pair of peregrines. I'm going for a walk there again next week and I'd rather not see him again. And that's it, word for word. I'd rather not see him again, which is just out and out, go and shoot him.
2: So, you know, they were saying you're never going to get a text message explicitly stating to go out and kill raptors. It's more implied You know, the powerful people in the situation are maintaining their money, maintaining their status, whilst the working class people commit crime to alleviate their financial struggles. There is vicarious liability in Scotland. Vicarious liability is basically where somebody, so a landowner or a sporting agent, could be held responsible for the criminal actions of an employee. So in legal terms, Scotland's recognising the accountability of the landowner. However, I'm sure you've seen in the study that unfortunately there's not a lot of evidence that raptor persecution has reduced in Northern Scotland, um, and there's been very, very few convictions under the law as well.
3: And I think there was like a sentence in your paper that looked at the societal pressure to address this crime is less than it is for other crimes. and so you can see from the police's point of view there's less public interest or like public pressure on them to be cracking down on it?
2: Yeah, exactly. The reality is that it is so widespread now. You know, it's happening all over the UK. But sadly, wildlife crime in general, particularly rapt persecution, is so hard to detect. I think the criminal justice system just doesn't know how to deal with it. They don't want to put the resources into it maybe as well, you could argue. Um, I mean, many people would probably argue that there's much more pressing issues to deal with. It's kind of put quite low down the scale.
3: While raptor persecution isn't going to be a priority for most police forces, there are some specialist units that focus on wildlife crimes.
4: The next station is Skipton. This train terminates here. Please take all your belongings with you.
3: Right, Skipton Police Station. Great. Hey, Mark. It is, yeah. Hi,
1: Hi nice how to how meet you. Good luck. Hello, I'm um, Acting Inspector Mark Earnshaw of the North Yorkshire Rural Task Force.
3: His team deal with all kinds of wildlife and rural crimes, but if there is a suspected incident of raptor persecution on the North Yorkshire moors, like Susie's, Mark's department will be called.
1: We will deal with all reported incidents and um, try and, and get an investigation underway. We will work with our uh, partner agencies, especially with National Wildlife Crime Unit, Natural England and the RSPB as well. And these are where they've lost tags or whether people have found them. Uh, and then we will always recover the animal and we will always look at if we can find them, how they have come to be deceased.
3: How many people have you got prosecuted for rapt persecution? in Yorkshire, like, last year?
1: I, I don't have those figures to hand.
3: Is it sort of dozens or...? No, it
1: won't be dozens.
3: It won't be dozens. Like, a couple? Possibly. Do you think your work is having an impact? Do you feel like you're making progress?
1: S- slow progress, yeah. I, I, feel, I feel we are, but it is a really difficult area to police. So we have to try and look at different ways to educate, to let people know that we will investigate. We are looking for offenders of crime, but also to try and change people's attitudes, I suppose, and behaviour. Without the public reporting incidents to us and people who are close to the people who commit raptor persecution coming to us and standing up and saying this is wrong, then it's really difficult for us to progress that crime.
3: How often does that happen, that someone comes forward to you with information, someone who's close to the people doing this? Uh, not enough. It
1: is difficult. Criminally, mm. it's difficult. Politically, you have massively polarised views on both sides. So to to get people to engage is, is difficult. That has been an eye-opener, massive, massive eye-opener for me. And I have been challenged more probably in this role than I ever was on response or in my other roles.
3: Matt Hagen, who used to be on this, um, on the rural crime force, said that out of... This is in the National Geographical article. Hand on my heart, I've never heard of a single gamekeeper or a state owner picking up the phone or writing an email to the police saying, I've got some information for you. He went on to say, they all know what is going on and they cover it up.
1: You'd have to ask Matt about that.
3: Do you agree with his comments?
1: Um... No comment on that.
3: Do you feel that police forces are taking this issue seriously enough?
1: Uh, The response you'll get from force to force will be different, but I can only really speak for North Yorkshire. We take it seriously.
3: Mark hadn't worked on the case with Susie's nest, but promised he'd looked into the details before we chatted. He had a binder in front of him with information printed out. We picked up from when Natural England had reported the crime and handed over the camera footage of the nest.
1: We've visited, seized the chicks. Three of the four are outside the nest. The area was searched. There was an undefinable footprint close to the nest and some quad bike tracks about 400 metres away from the nest. Uh, Nothing that could be attributed because of the covering of the ground so you couldn't get a defined footprint or quad-bite print off it that just marks in the grass, there was no sign of sheep trampling or animal and with the birds being outside the nest it's very unlikely that there would have been a predator.
3: So it was a human?
1: It can be assumed that it was a human.
3: Did you look at DNA?
1: CSI, there was nothing for CSI at the site, no DNA opportunities, the chicks were sent away for post-mortem and they came back with catastrophic injuries.
3: But your appeal for information didn't go out till December. Appeal for witnesses. Yeah. So why the six-month wait to...? The,
1: um, that was all to do with the post-mortem on the chicks. There was a delay in the post-mortem because the chicks came back with um, bird flu.
3: Could you have sent out an appeal for information before confirming that the birds had been crushed after the post-mortem?
1: Probably. I don't, I don't know why that wasn't done, but it, it, it's probably something they could have done earlier, yeah.
3: Do you think, because if I try and remember what I was doing six months ago, like it seems kind of pointless to send out an appeal for information after six months. Um,
1: I think people do remember things.
3: Okay. Did you have anyone get back to that appeal for information? No. Were you expecting anyone to get back to it?
1: Um, Well, you're always hopeful.
3: And did you question anyone about this incident? No. No. What else were you able to do to dig into it and find out what happened?
1: Uh, I think that's as far as the investigation went.
3: So where does the case stand now?
1: As far as, as we're concerned, unless we get any new evidence, the case has been closed.
3: Case closed. The police hadn't talked to the gamekeepers or the landowners in the local area about it. Later, I wondered about the quad bike tracks. It's typically moorland workers like gamekeepers and farmers who use quad bikes to get around the terrain. I asked Mark, who said that these were indentations in the grass assumed to be from a quad bike because of their size and that they could not be attributed to the destruction of the nest. It's possible that no one, except those involved in the crime, will ever know who stamped on Susie's chicks. Still, after lots of digging through maps and official documents, I finally managed to find out who owned the land that Susie's nest was on. When I reached out to them, a spokesperson said, at no point had the estate been informed that the nest was located on their land or that this incident had taken place. North Yorkshire Police investigated the matter but did not contact the landowner until after their investigation was completed. When it was finally brought to their attention, the estate was appalled to hear of the incident. The landowner fully supports efforts to rebuild the hen harrier population. The reason I spent months looking into the Susie case, despite recognising that it would probably remain unsolved, is because this small story illustrates a much bigger problem that spans the grouse shooting industry. There are two main organisations that represent landowners, land managers and gamekeepers of driven grouse moors. The Moorland Association and the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. The Moorland Association declined to speak to us for the podcast, but a spokesperson said, we would support the most severe sanctions being imposed on anyone found to have harmed a bird of prey. The significant increase in the number of birds of prey in recent years including buzzard, barn owl and red kite, demonstrates the commitment of grouse Moor managers to boosting biodiversity. The number of hen harrier chicks fledged in England last year was the highest for a century. The British Association for Shooting and Conservation agreed to an interview.
6: So I'm Gareth Doherty. My current role is Deputy Director of Shooting and Operations at the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, or or Basque to make things a lot easier.
3: Could you kind of talk us through how you're engaging your members to reduce raptor persecution?
6: From the outset, I'll say that we've been very, very clear as an organisation that we have an absolute zero tolerance to any form of raptor persecution. And then we work across multiple levels within the organisation to tackle the challenges of raptor persecution within the shooting community. So whether that be working with the various police forces or working with Crime Stoppers or working with our partner conservation organisations. And on the other hand, we invest in Hen Harrier Conservation and the two work simultaneously together to deliver for the species.
3: If, for example, one of your members was accused of raptor persecution, would they be like no longer a member of BASC? How does that work with like individual estates and your relationship with estates who are accused of this or indeed convicted of it?
0: You
6: do have to differentiate that obviously in this country people are innocent until proven guilty. So from, a, from an actual conviction point of view, again, we have a very firm line that anybody convicted of a wildlife crime or rapt persecution will be expelled from the organisation. We're very careful in these situations that until there isn't enough evidence to convict somebody we can't start pointing the finger at, at, at individuals. There is obviously cases, I think you've covered the probable persecution incident in North Yorkshire last year. We came out where that case was concerned with our partners as well. And we we're very clear that that although there may not be a criminal conviction regarding that case, looking at the report that Natural England have put forward, that case clearly shows that there's been some form of rapt persecution. So again, we've been very, very clear on our position with that, that it's categorically cannot, should not and cannot happen.
3: Just to clarify your position on that, it's interesting. You said it was a probable case of raptor persecution. Or are you saying it's unequivocally a case of raptor persecution?
6: From the Natural England report, it very much looks like a human being has effectively gone to a hen harrier nest and stamped on it. It would be ridiculous of me to claim that that does not look like, and, you know, 99% sure that looks like raptor persecution.
3: In that case, it's interesting. Like ninety nine percent is obviously quite high, but I appreciate that no one's been convicted for this. But given the ninety nine percent chance of it being raptor persecution, would you consider readdressing your relationship with the estate if they were a member of Basque?
6: Um, it is a hypothetical question. We've not had to have that conversation, but um, when you work with trusted partners, that would put us in a situation where we would have to have those conversations. Yes.
3: Basque later clarified via email that since 2013, out of their membership of close to 150,000, there have been three individuals who've had their memberships revoked over incidents relating to raptor persecution. How hen harriers are faring today depends on who you ask and how they measure success. Numbers of hen harrier chicks fledging are beginning to gradually climb. Just last week, Natural England told me that this year, in the Wernside area, they've monitored seven breeding attempts producing 32 young hen harriers. While this is undoubtedly good news, a recent research paper published in the journal Biological Conservation and led by the RSPB found hen harriers are typically living just four months after fledging. They found illegal killing accounts for 75% of mortality in birds aged between one and two years, and this is highest in areas managed for red-grouse shooting. Too few survive long enough to estimate illegal killing for adults. Earlier this year, in the Peak District, a bird-of-prey initiative that worked with landowners, gamekeepers, police and conservation experts called time on the partnership. Some of the scheme's participants had pulled out and illegal killings of raptors and lack of meaningful change were cited as reasons to end the initiative. For example, in 2021, they found just one single breeding pair of hen harriers in the Peak District. Another pair was spotted mating and prospecting, but neither were subsequently seen again, despite extensive monitoring. No one in England has ever done any jail time for raptor persecution. After months of looking into this, I don't have a solution. I just don't know. I don't know who killed Susie's chicks. I don't know how you prevent the perfect crime, how you hold the right people to account and how you move forward productively. It's so messy, maybe messier than any other wildlife conflict I've covered. What I am left with is a sense that these incredible, beautiful birds deserve a chance to thrive on our moorlands, so we can all see them. Because I promise, standing amongst the heather, high up on a hill, watching a hen harrier dance on the breeze, is exhilarating. Oh, she's up! I hope you get a note. <gasps> Looks so effortless. Yeah.
0: That's definitely hunting. See how low it is to the ground. You can hear the curdy over there. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh,
3: that's awesome. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Oh. oh, and one more thing before you go. When I last spoke to Natural England, they told me Susie has had six chicks, two of which have been tagged and have been called Hazel and Hope by the landowner. They've already left the nest. This was a special Age of Extinction mini-series for Science Weekly. It was reported and produced by me, Phoebe Weston and Madeline Finley. It was sound designed by Joel Cox and executive produced by Ellie Bury. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us on Science Weekly at theguardian.com. Madeline and Ian Sample will be back next week. They'll see you then.
0: This is the Guardian.